Hello, this is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on lawrencehits.com, and this is Talk With Me. We're recording during April, and most of April I've been reminding everybody that April is National Poetry Month because there's a lot of goodness that happens through art and art connections, poetry and painting and dance and all kinds of ways that art is this powerful way of bringing people together communicating, building empathy and understanding, those things that are so important. And they are, are also important in this other part of my life. As I say that this show for me is at the intersection of art and mental health. Today, we're going to lean on the mental health side of the neighborhood. April also includes the annual conference for the American Association of Suicidology, and listeners say, what? Basically, it's a big deal for people getting together to work together to increase what we can do, do better at preventing suicide, as well as supporting people who are living with suicide thoughts, as well as supporting people who are bereaved by suicide, and people who are supporting people who are living with suicide, all of that stuff. Um, that's kind of what suicidology is about. It's, it's how we can learn and grow and do better as a world, not just as mental health people, because as the association said, suicide prevention really is everybody's business. So you say, well, this doesn't sound like so much fun, but the truth is, I'm going to get back to that art thing. Suicide prevention is about having a life that's really worth living. So there's the fun part. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Today, my guest is coming to us from the Denver, Colorado area. And yes, our connection came through the American Association of Suicidology and, and both of our passions for, for helping people and making that help really accessible. And I will also mention that I'm thrilled that this person is also a university professor and so has lots of different ways that she reaches people to make this a better world for people who have some struggles, which can be any of us at different times. So welcome, Stacy Friedenthal. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, Marcia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to do this. Um, I, wanted to, I, I always do ask my guests to say a little bit about themselves just to give that, that introduction to our listeners. So what are some things that you would like people to know about you? Hmm. Well, um, as you said, I'm a university professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, and I coordinate the mental health curriculum for the school and teach classes on counseling and assessment, including a class on suicide risk assessment and intervention. I also have a small private practice specializing in helping people who are touched by suicide in some way. So that could mean that they um, themselves have suicidal thoughts or that they've uh, lost a loved one to suicide. And then I have the website uh, speakingofsuicide.com. And that is also a website for anybody who's touched by suicide in some way or the merely curious, as I put on the site. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's about it. Which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And so the starting point is a little bit about, so what got you there 
to this work in soul psychology. Because as you and I know, it's not common enough as an area of learning, teaching, gaining expertise in. What, what, what's your connection? Well, there's a number of different connections. Um, I think the one that is most directly linked to my research on suicide and my study of suicide is that when I was in high school, there was a cluster of suicides in um, the Dallas area. I grew up in Houston and Dallas is like 200 and something miles away, but it still seemed very close because we would hear about it a lot. It was in Plano, Texas. Did you hear about that? It was in. Yes. So, um, so it was just like, it was in the news a lot. I I'm pretty sure it was on the cover of time. And, um, and then like, it just kind of got closer and, you know, from Dallas to Houston and it was like it spread or something. And so, uh, my best friend at the time, she had a brother whose best friend died by suicide. And then just a few weeks later, there was a boy in my high school who died by suicide, who I didn't know well. I, I knew, but I didn't really know him. But then five days after that, a friend of mine died by suicide. And we were all with him that night, and we were all at a party together. And then he killed himself about um, maybe about two hours later. So, so that really, I remember, you know, when I got the call about his death the next morning, I remember kind of, I mean, I have this very distinct memory of going on to the, going outside and sitting on the curb and just wondering like, why didn't he tell anybody and why didn't he get help? And, um, and so then when I got my doctorate, my dissertation was on why adolescent, on adolescents who don't get help. Oh, or, I didn't you know, know when they're suicidal. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and ironically, um, he was Mexican American and the key finding from my dissertation was that, uh, uh, African American and Mexican American adolescents get, uh, use mental health services at a rate of about half that of white when they are having thoughts of suicide or around the time of when they're having thoughts of suicide. So lots of cultural things and access things and, you know, cultural competence, as we say, in terms of are there people who know how to be most helpful to people from a variety of different cultures? Lots of things might feed into that, but, but how sad. And, and on the other hand, I think that those of us who work with this issue of suicide are largely people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. And, and maybe, I know for me, that that personal part of it continues way post my original getting involved. In fact, um, it's, you know, it's not just that we're more aware of it, but, but um, it's unfortunately something that happens as you and I know that, that the, the people who died by suicide are different backgrounds, all kinds of things. So we, we, I, I tell people this, I mean, there's no question in my mind that all of us know people who have struggled with thoughts of suicide at some point. They may not have told us that, right. but, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that we need to be aware that that's a, a place where people get to sometimes and that 
as we say, you know, we, we've got to be talking about it. And and as you pointed out, with your you have your website and Facebook presence with speaking of suicide, that that whole idea that we need to be reaching out to people in all these places where they are, because they aren't only in offices of doctors and therapists. No, in fact, most aren't. Mm-hmm. You know, the the research is that in a in the year before somebody dies by suicide, the chances are about one in three that they went to a mental a, a mental health professional. Now, I'm not in, I'm not counting primary care physicians in that because it's a much higher rate for primary care. But in terms of a therapist or a psychiatrist, only one in three are getting help in the year before they die by suicide. And and the other piece of that that we know, you know, in our profession is that unfortunately, so many of those practitioners who people end up with really don't know a lot about how to help reduce suicide risk. They may be really good in other areas. They may be really wonderful, caring people, but they may not really know what makes a difference in helping people be able to get to the point where they can stay alive and have a life that's worth staying alive for. Yes, unfortunately, that's true. And I would even go so far as to say that there are professionals out there who are doing harm. Mm -hmm. And I say that with great sadness, but I I keep hearing stories about professionals who are so scared of the topic that either they, they can't ask about it, they're too scared to ask a client if they're thinking of suicide, Mm-hmm. Or when the client mentions it, they react in a way that um, is not in the client's, that is not meeting the client's needs. It's kind of meeting their needs to manage anxiety. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about this, uh, I always like to sort of flip things too. So what are some things like that, that people can do? And so I wonder, just off the top of your head, and, and I'll probably have some thoughts to add to this too, what are some things that you would encourage somebody to ask or look for in a mental health person um, when the issue that's that needs help is is related to suicide? Well, it's it's funny you um, say that because one of the posts on my website is how to find a therapist who doesn't panic, uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm. I'm going to pull it up on my iPad right now because I'd like to refresh my memory about what I said because I don't even remember, but um, it was a couple of years ago, but off the top of my head, um, um, I think, you know, it's tricky because someone who's looking for a therapist doesn't know them well enough to disclose, you know, like for, for example, when you're calling on the phone, it can be hard to say, what's your approach to working with suicidal clients if you've never even met the therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so, but if, you know, the person feels comfortable doing that, I think that's a place to start is just, you know, when they call to make the appointment or if it's at an agency, you know, when they're in the intake to ask, you know, what's your approach and, and what training do you have? Mm-hmm. You know, because there's so many therapists who, and when I say what training do you have, I mean, what training do you have in suicide prevention? Right. So, so um, is it okay for me to say what is in this post? 
That'd be great because I think, you know, as long you know, as instead of us just leaving people with, yeah, there aren't a lot of people who know how to be helpful. Let's let's help people find somebody helpful. Yeah, exactly. So what I recommend in this post is to first um, see if they list suicide uh, uh, assessment and intervention or suicide prevention as an area of focus in their profile. So, you know, a lot of therapists are listed on psychology today or good therapy, you know, so do they list that in their profile? Because if they do, I mean, that's the person, you know, that's a person to interview, you know, because they're putting it out there that this is what they work with. They've gotten in training in suicide intervention. Um, and so uh, another thing is to ask when making the appointment if they accept clients in a suicidal crisis, because there's so many therapists who will say no. I just recently had an, ex a, a, an experience where I was trying to find a referral for somebody in a different uh, state. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to one outpatient therapist, she said, I don't accept suicidal clients because I'm a solo practitioner and I, I can't take emergency calls. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that's something that would be good to know right off the right, you know, before even going and setting foot in a therapist's office and, you know, revealing yourself and yeah. being vulnerable and getting attached. And as you just, the example you gave, I want to say to, to our listeners, for me, that's a very responsible ethical stance that that particular practitioner gave. Not that she doesn't think that it's important to serve people who are at risk of suicide, but that she's aware, I think you said she, I hope. Yes. Okay. That, that she doesn't have the ability um, in terms of how her practice is structured to meet the needs that are not going to just be, you know, every week or every other week, whatever, in the room when therapy. Um, I would I would much rather have a therapist be honest about that than than say sure I work with suicidal people because I think that's important you know and then have somebody have needs that that therapist they're already engaged with can't meet that would be terrible. Well, I, I'm gonna take a a different view mm -hmm. and ask: Does that mean that anybody who's in private practice shouldn't see suicidal clients? That's not what I think, but I think that we have to have tools, ways of, of meeting needs. And, and I know, because I'm, I always say I'm kind of an outlier. I do things a lot differently than a lot of other people, but my commitment to people who I work with is that we will be able to communicate when there are needs between sessions and that I am a real person that is not available at you know, instantly 24 seven. But when you say to me, when you reach me, and I do allow people to text me for crisis, to say that I, I need to, to talk to you soon, I will get back with that person as soon as I can or help figure out another step if it if somehow it couldn't be me, you know, that that I that's part of how I do my work. So, so I think it's, you know, it's, I understand what you're saying that basically we need more people to be willing and able and trained and effective and compassionate at reducing suicide risk and helping those bereaved by suicide and, and all of that. But um, it, it takes a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm definitely available between sessions with the caveat that, like you said, that I'm human and I've got other obligations. So I'm not going to be able to respond instantly most of the time. Mm -hmm. But um, but I, I just wouldn't want to see us, and I don't mean you and me, but just as a profession, take an all or nothing approach that either right. you're available 24-7 or you're not available at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I talk with my clients about, you know, and that's where safety planning comes in. I talk with them about, you know, if you are in an emergency and you do you need to talk to someone right away, what, you know, what are the different options that you can you can go to? And safety planning is such a great thing and it's something that that we can talk about. And when when we mentioned that, I, I want to mention it as a framework, but we were we were in this conversation about, you know, some things to look for for a, a therapist who can really be helpful in reducing suicide risk. And that that question about what kind of access are they providing when needed in crisis has to be one of those questions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And 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 are they willing to treat somebody in crisis is the fundamental question because there are a, a really, you know, there, that really is an issue. When I worked at a suicide hotline in in Austin, Texas, um, quite some years ago, we had a database of people that we could refer to, and most of them said they would not accept suicidal clients. Wow. So, you know, so right off the bat, I mean, I think if the person does feel comfortable asking on the phone, that's the place to start. Mm-hmm. You know, do you accept suicidal clients? Mm-hmm. That's important. Yeah, that's really important. And when I talk to people about choosing a therapist, and I say this about myself, you know, I say that that you definitely want a person who has the experience and skills in helping with whatever it is, in this case, suicide risk, that that you're wanting help with. And it's also the case that there has to be a good match personally in the sense of people's, if you want to say personality, personal traits, you know, they're, they're just way of being in the world, that there are people who are um, wonderfully trained and they are really fabulous therapists, but it still might not be the right person for you because it, there may be something about the sort of interpersonal, you know, lack of match between this person in need and this therapist. So, so I say that because, like for me, I always will meet with people um, to, to kind of get to know each other. And what I say to people is I want you to be able to go away, reflect on the experience, and, and we'll both be thinking about this. Does it seem like we're a good match? That, 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 that I have the skills, do I have the skills that you're looking for? And does it seem to you like we could work together? And there's no offense if you say you aren't the one for me, you know, that that's really important to me. And I guess, I mean, it relates to, to my, my way of being in the world, but also my own experience, you know, that, that yes, I've, I've talked to therapists, you know, for myself before too. And, and I know a lot of people who work in mental health and we aren't all a good match for everybody. That's just real life. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's chemistry, right? Yes, yes, yeah. That's really important. <laughs> There's chemistry in any relationship. 
I worked with one young man who told me, that's why I came to talk to you, because you told me I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right, then. <laughs> anyway, so like you, you mentioned the safety plan thing. And as long as, you know, we're gonna, I, I think we're going to use this show to throw out some hints to people. Um, what, what are some things you'd like to say about safety planning? Well, um, so, you know, there's, there's the contrast with safety planning is a contract, you know, so a lot of therapists have their client make a promise or sign a contract saying that they will not act on their suicidal thoughts. And, you know, there's a lot of obvious flaws with that. One being that if it were that easy, nobody would need a therapist. Right. (laughs) You know, if if all it took was saying, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to die by suicide. Okay, well, good. Everything's good now. You know, then then there wouldn't be an issue. Right. But in reality, you know, rather than telling people what they can't do, what we need to do is help people come up with what they can do when they're feeling suicidal. And that's where safety planning comes in. So a safety plan isn't a contract. It's you know, it's not a vow. It's saying, okay, here are the ways that I can be vigilant, you know, to so that I can be on the lookout to see if a suicidal crisis might be brewing. So that's the first piece is looking at warning signs. And then um, if I do start having suicidal thoughts, how can I distract myself? How can I cope so that these thoughts don't take over? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so what can I do internally by internally? I mean, without going to somebody else for help, because what we want is to help people build the skills to cope without becoming, you know, dependent on others. However, then the next step is if that's not enough, then who can I talk to, you know, well, actually who can I be with um, whether or not I talk about my suicidal thoughts. And then the next step is who can I talk to about my suicidal thoughts? Who's a, who's not a professional, who's a friend or family member. And then the next step, you know, we're we're getting more advanced with each step. Then the next step is um, what professionals can I talk to or go to, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes people will need to uh, skip, you know, to one of the later steps. Mm -hmm. But the idea is kind of to have layers, you know, that you go through. Yeah. Yeah. And so it gets back to that. It's about real life. You know, it's like, I know that when I'm having a hard day, my next step is not to make an appointment with a therapist. It is to talk to people around me, to take a walk outside and kind of reflect and clear my head and and experience nature. I mean, there are all these things that I'm going to do before I get to the point where, okay, what I'm trying isn't really working and I need to go talk to somebody, you know, and make an appointment and do that. And that's what I hope is true for everybody. We, you know, and I believe, you know, it's true for everybody. We all, we, we're surely going to talk to close friends if we have those before we think we need to go talk to some expert, you know, and, and the safety plan acknowledges that and prompts people. It's, it's this cool thing. When, when I think about safety plans, one of the things that comes to my mind is, I remember talking to Jennifer Battle, who works in suicide prevention in Houston at this big center. And 
she told me, Jennifer told me that when they hire staff and part of their staff training and orientation for this big center that works with mental health and developmental disability needs, they do a safety plan related to managing stress. They, they use that same model to get people to identify, you know, what are some of my own signals and circumstances that, that I, that will get me down this major stress rabbit hole, you know, and what are some of the things I know to do? And so they use that model in different ways. And I love that because I think it's so accurate. And when we do it in a collaborative way, when we get to talk with somebody and talk through these different steps, including starting with what, what do you know about yourself? It's so meaningful because a lot of times people haven't really thought about it very concretely. They haven't really, especially, I mean, some people I know would say, I don't know. I don't know what gets me feeling bad. I don't know what happens first. But as we start having conversation, they can start identifying things. And exactly. My, yeah, and my my view of this is is, is always, you know, we, we if we are used to taking a walk and we go on this path that's well-worn, we just kind of automatically follow that path. It's just what we're used to doing. But the truth is we have the opportunity to make detours if the end of the path is someplace we really don't want to go to, <laughs> you know? And so so we learn to, to wear grooves in these detours and do these other things instead of ending up in that certain place that we don't want to go to. And, and you know, I find that it's not quick and easy. It's like everything else, you know? Really getting a good safety plan for you as an individual at this moment in time it takes some time, it takes some thought, and then actually using it, <laughs> it's the whole other part of that. It's like not just identifying those things, but but getting practice. And just like anything else, it takes doing stuff to really learn how to, you know, for, I don't know how many people still drive standard transmission cars, but for those of us who, who learned that skill, you know, there's a huge difference between when you're first trying to do all that with the clutch and the brake and the clutch and the gas and the gear shift and the steering wheel and looking in the mirror so you don't hit anybody and all this stuff, you know, which is overwhelming at first. And then there gets to be a point where it's just automatic. You know, you get in your car and you start it and you go, you know, and, and that's to me what needs to happen with us with safety plans too is, is yeah, we need to make ourselves try those things first. And then after a while, they get to be easy to do. And sometimes they need to change. You know, I've, I've had people, like I have a, a support group for people with suicidal thoughts and suicide attempt history. And, you know, and, and people will say, you know, when the first time I ever did the safety plan, um, you know, when I came to this group starting a year ago, when I came the first time, you know, I had different people on my sort of go-to, you know, who I can talk to list than I do right now. It's like cool, you know. You're you're thinking about it. You're you're changing it. That's really great. So you know, I obviously get really excited about safety plans. <laughs> I think it's well, it, it is a way of living, right? Yeah, you know? absolutely. You know, and I, I think, think. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I think you know, with with contracts, which I contrasted, you know, safety plans with before. The you know the safety plan was you call me. Yeah. you know, as the first step, yeah. like if you have suicidal thoughts, you promise not to do anything before calling me or yeah. going to an emergency room. Yeah. Well, that 
um, you know, sometimes that's going to have to happen regardless. But to make that the the plan universally, right. the person never builds the skills to to deal with things on their own. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all externalized. Yeah, and we all need those skills. You know, and and that's so important. That's that's one of the things is that it really is stuff we all need to be thinking about. And and we need, you know, what I think about, like you mentioned, the contrast with, you know, it's it's not just this, if I'm suicidal, I contact the therapist or go to the hospital. It's not like that, which isn't going to be very helpful. It is about getting people to use real life skills. And it is also about being really specific, really concrete, you know, in terms of what is really going to work for this person what is available who is available how do you reach that person all these details need to be part of the safety plan and i say that because i remember one of one of my um circumstances with somebody who uh, a mom whose whose brother had died of suicide and that brother was probably the most important male in her young son's life who was her son was about six when when um the brother uncle died and there were concerns about the six-year-old in terms of you know over time how how he was affected by the uncle's death and so the mom was talking about taking the kid and going to the community mental health center i said that's great you know it's it's really good to you know, to, to talk to those people and kind of get some help. It seems like, you know, you're at a point where you really need some help. And, and I said, but I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, one thing I'm going to tell you to, to be cautious of is to, and this kind of relates to the preparation of the therapist. I said, the first response is not that he needs to be hospitalized, you know, based on everything that you have told me about you and your child hospitalization isn't the need. You, you guys are in need of some more tools and some extra support, but not not hospitalization for this young boy. There's no danger that's imminent that you've described. You know, there's nothing, it's not that he's harming himself. It's not that he's talking about suicide. It's He's having a hard time. So, so after she goes to the first appointment, she calls me and she's like, I'm so glad you talked to me about the hospital because that was the first thing they said. And so I said, no. And then we were able to talk and it was really helpful. And I said, that's great. You know, how was it helpful? And she mentioned some things and then she said, you know, and then, and they told me to have a safety plan for him. So that's great. You know, what did you guys come up with together for the safety plan? And she goes, Oh, they just told me to have one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay then. Well, let's figure out what might be in it because that's the important part. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, if you buy a book, you need to actually read it to get (laughs) what's inside it. (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting. And that that speaks to finding helpers who are trained in reducing suicide risk. Hey, um, I'm so enjoying this. And it's halfway through the hour. And there's so much more we need to talk about. So we're going to take this quick break, hear from some of the advertisers that support lawrencehits.com. And I say a big thank you to Daniel Smith for making this show available to our listeners. And then we will be right back with more Talk With Me with Stacey Friedenthal. Welcome back to Talk With Me and Stacey Friedenthal. We're talking about how we help people get to life that's worth living, AKA suicide prevention. And Stacey, I want you to say some things about 
the kinds of stuff that you put on, speaking of suicide on the website, on the Facebook, and also whatever you would like to say about these discussions that are happening all over because of some popular media, um, both the S-Town podcast and the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, and really primarily that that one, as well as the recent death of Amy Bluhl, who founded the Semicolon Pro- Project Semicolon. You know, there's there's been lots and lots of conversation about suicide in popular media, on popular media. And I know there are different perspectives from people who see themselves as advocates for suicide prevention professionally, and maybe how people are being affected. It's complicated, but I see this as this huge opportunity for some positive things to be talked about, some help, because there's a lot of conversation about suicide right now. There really is. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to go on Facebook or, you know, um, go online without hearing something, right, about suicide or about a show about suicide. Yeah. So, well, which which would you like me to talk about first? I mean, I think, you know, what's most current right now is the show 13 Reasons Why. Uh-huh. And there's, you know, a lot of discussion about that. And it's, I think, I, I read somewhere that it's the most popular show on Netflix right now, but I don't know that that's really, you know, I don't know how they know that. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, since you've mentioned that one, what are some of your thoughts and what are some of, you know, you... I know you have some great things on speaking of suicide that we might want to point people to. What are some things you'd like to say about that? Well, I myself haven't watched the series. So really, you know, um, I've been, I've been participating vicariously in reading the discussions and definitely on the suicide prevention side, there's a lot of alarm, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of fear from people who worry that this could trigger contagion. Mm-hmm. because in young people, contagion um, is a phenomenon that occurs, you know? So it's not that talking about suicide gives someone the idea. It's that if things, um, if suicide is presented in a way that is kind of glamorized or romanticized, that people are vulnerable to that. Mm-hmm. And here you've got a TV show where, this is the way a, a girl exacted revenge, mm-hmm. you know, that her suicide was a way to hurt other people with um, the, I believe it was tapes that were delivered to the people who she viewed as the, you know, as the agents of her suicide. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there's a lot of concern that some young vulnerable people will think, well, I could do that. You know, and that then I could really, you know, that's a a way to really be powerful. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of that Huckleberry Finn fantasy of being at your own funeral, right? Yeah. You know, but the reality is, is the person won't be there to see other people's reactions. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of fantasy involved in that. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm seeing the alarm on the suicide prevention side, but then on the other side, I'm also reading, and there's a conversation on my Facebook page about this where somebody said, this has been great to watch this with my adolescent child and to talk about suicide and to be able to talk openly about it. You know, so um, so I, I wonder, is that kind of the gift you're talking about? 
I think we have the opportunity to direct it that way, I guess. It's, it's one of those things where, like for me, I also have consciously chosen not to watch the show because at this moment in my life and my work, I am so immersed with suicide issues with live people who I'm in the room with that I sort of as a protective factor for myself have chosen this is not the time for me to watch this series. I did read the book um, actually summer a year ago because I wanted to know what the book was like. Um, so I have a, only a little bit of sense from from that reading. But So I also didn't choose to read it, but I also understand that for some people, they are making some positive out of this. You know, that there are some people who are um, saying that, it, it, you know, I'm not alone, the, all those kinds of things. I understand more about how somebody might get there. I, you know, I, I am recognizing the huge impact of bullying and sexual violence and all these things. And so I'm going to be more alert to that, more of a person who stands up than stands by when I, when these things come to my attention. You know, I think there's the, the absolute positivity, our possibility for people to to be engaged in this conversation and and become more compassionate people because of that and like you and like you know the thing that i think is is in our professional community is the concern about those who are already very vulnerable to acting on suicide and who um, are already very vulnerable to the impact of unexpectedly you know, experiencing through media, bullying and sexual violence and all this stuff, you know, and, and for, I guess for me, you know, that, that part of it resonates with, you can't unsee stuff once you've seen it, you know? Um, and I took very seriously Desiree Stage's comments about the graphic um, depiction of the death um, that I don't want to see that, you know? And, and I worry about people who are vulnerable seeing that and what that does to them. Um, and my hope is that people will, again, be reaching out for more help, that that becomes more okay, and offering help more, you know. So I can, I can see, like, lots of different facets of this. It's not just this side or that side. There are all these different facets of it. And so it's both scary and exciting because the reality is, as we know, and, and one of the things, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to participate much, the social uh, media part of suicide prevention, those, those Sunday night chats uh, with, you know, really recognizing that people of all ages are using all kinds of ways to communicate about suicide. And so we need everybody to learn about how to, how to help each other because, any of us can be the friend, the online person, whatever, who, who has that opportunity to make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, very well said. So it's, it's, a, it's a challenging time. You know, it's that, that thing about how crisis is opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's what I perceive with all the, the media stuff, you know, that um, it, you know, your, your title of your website is Speaking of Suicide. My kind of tagline on my stuff is talking is the first step, you know. We, we need that. 
we need to to put this out in the open because otherwise it just keeps happening and happening and happening and you know not not talking about suicide is not a way to save lives we know that no and there's such a misconception that if we talk about it then we give the person the idea and you know i teach a class on suicide assessment and intervention at the graduate level and 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 not even just among my students when i give workshops to professionals you know these are trained mental health professionals and they're scared to ask you know and and there's all sorts of reasons why they're scared to ask mm -hmm. one is that they're scared the person will say yes yes but one is that they're scared of putting the idea on the person's head and and you know and then i ask my students or if it's a workshop with professionals i ask them i say well you know, are you, do you want to kill yourself now because I've brought it up? Uh -huh. And, you know, and, and they're probably, you know, and then I say there may be somebody in this room who is having suicidal thoughts statistically. You we aren't. know that, you know, but we're, you know, you know, does my talking about it make you want to go out and kill yourself? And of course the answer is no. And everybody knows about suicide. Right. Like, I've asked people before, I've said, when did you first learn about suicide? And I've yet to find somebody who can remember. It's it's like through osmosis, we yeah. learn about it at a yeah. very, very young age. Yeah. I used to do, when I was um, the director at Headquarters Counseling Center in Lawrence, one of the things that I developed with some school staff was a suicide prevention education program that we did in health classes. And in our area at that time, health classes were a required class for eighth graders. So we did a little pre and post test with the, the work that we did with the students. And one of the things on the pretest, or two of the things on the pretest, one was, have you or anybody you've known attempted or died of suicide? And another was, have you ever seen any TV shows, movies, newspaper articles, magazine articles, you know, online content, blah, 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 any media about suicide, you know, and these were eighth graders. And so eighth graders, what, they're 14, something like that, 13, 14. It was, you know, in the, in the thousands of times we were in classrooms over the years, there were probably you know, maybe a dozen kids who said no to that, those two questions, exposure, but thousands of kids of eighth grade level who already, you know, and a, and a, a third or more, depending on the class, had already known somebody who'd attempted or died of suicide. So, so, you know, that was one of those very, here is a very objective measure to say, these kids know about suicide. They know some things from their experiences. They may not know accurate stuff, you know, if all their stuff has been through media, but they've already been exposed, you know. So let's go from there and educate and help people feel more comfortable telling somebody, talking to somebody, helping somebody, getting help for somebody, you know, all that stuff. Because that's that's where that part comes in with, you know, everybody has a role. It's so true. It really is. Yeah. And, and I also just want to add that there is research that shows that asking about um, suicidal thoughts doesn't, um, you know, give people the idea. Yeah. So, so we know it's important to talk about. We know there's a lot going on in in social media and popular media and all kinds of things. And so it's it is 
again, an, a time to, to help people learn more, feel more comfortable helping and getting help, all that stuff, which is, you know, why we're doing this podcast, for example. <laughs> and, and We're I talking wanna, about it. Yeah, I want to get to another part of it. You know, I mentioned the, just a few things that are sort of, for me, on the self-care side. You know, you're you're teaching students, you're talking to people about suicide so frequently. You're, you know, I know it's hard work to keep relevant content on on the blog, the website, the Facebook, you know, that, that you're exposed to suicide issues all the time. I know that that your husband, Peter Gutierrez, that's his specialty too. So so suicide is a major part of you know the topics of your life every single day. How do you do that? You know, how do, how do you do that with you not feeling totally overwhelmed? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, in my class, I, I talk about self-care and I have this list of my suggestions for self-care. And I would say the, the biggest thing for me, well, first of all, cats. I love okay. cats right. and we have cats. And so that I think, you know, is very cleansing to just come home and, and pet a cat and listen to it purr, you know, that that can uh, free my mind up. But the other piece for me is humor. And I know that might sound paradoxical to people like, how are you, you know, humor, suicide. <laughs> but I remember the first suicidology conference I went to, um, everyone was so funny. <laughs> And I realized that, like, you have to have a sense of humor yes. to study something so depressing or else you're going to get really depressed, yes. you know? So so I think humor is just a, a great way to cope. And I don't mean, like, making insensitive jokes about suicide, but just being able to, you know, be light yes. and to find things to laugh about. And, yeah. and there is a TED Talk video called... Um, I think it's called suicide a laugh or death matter Interesting. and it's by a man i think his name is ted king and he um had several suicides in his family and he has chronic suicidal thoughts and he is so funny <laughs> so i show that to my class you know as a as an example of how you know you can it is okay to use this defense mechanism. Yeah. Um, for you know, the the psychodynamic therapists list uh, mature defense mechanisms, and humor is one of them. So let let's indulge. Okay. So, so I mean, I'd love to be funny right now on command, but I, I'm I don't know how. Well, and, <laughs> and I'd love that you brought it up, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that is so personally important to me. Laughter is so important to me. And, and I, um, I, I truly believe, as, as I say, that without laughter, we explode and that's just not pretty. <laughs> and, and I have a dear friend who's a mental health advocate here in the Midwest, John Schuchart, who is a person who has, um, is surviving his own depression and suicidal thoughts and, and has a, um, a presentation. He does a lot of workshops and has a book that was originally called They're Going to Crack You Open Like a Chicken, which was something that his parents, his father, said to him when he was a young child going into surgery. And, and Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> and John's, John's message in his presentations and his book 
um, which is was renamed "You're Not the Brightest of My Three Sons." <laughs> and oh my thing God. His mother said to him, um, "Is is that finding the humor is what helps us break that depression cycle that we get down into." You know, and so one of his stories he shares is about the day that he nearly did die of suicide and how that turned out um, in a way that he uh, ended up contacting a friend in frustration with a piece of his plan that he couldn't quite get together and how the day turned around and really John's life turned around because his friend got him talking and laughing. You know, well, what were you going to eat as your last meal? Oh, I hadn't really thought about it, but I guess I, I might go to Dairy Queen and, and get a blizzard because I really like those. So what size are you going to get? Well, I always get a small one. It's like, it's your last day. Why would you get a small one? You know? <laughs> and, and those kinds of things that a good friend, I'm not saying that's what I would do in a therapy situation, but a good <laughs> friend could do and be heard and, and again, open up that person, in this case, John, to some light when there was this downward spiral into darkness, you know, and, and that, that has really become a focus that humor is hugely important. You know, there you go. So yeah, no, no, you go. Well, I was going to say, and are there some other kinds of things, you know, like when you think about, are you, are you somebody, do you, do you like to be outside or go hear music or, you know, are there some of those other kinds of activities that are also part of your self-care? I will answer that question. I want to say something though, because this is going to bug me. I was wrong <laughs> about the name. It's okay. not Ted King. It's Frank King okay. who, who did that uh, Ted talk in case somebody wants to look it up or in case he's listening. I want him to know I'm go. correcting his name. I'll put a link so, cool. so, um, well, I love to uh, take walks. I'm doing a 1,000 mile challenge this year where I'm going to walk 1,000 miles. Um, and that doesn't include just, you know, regular walking from the parking lot to my office. You know, uh -huh. these, these are boots on uh, walks where I've, you know, set out to do a walk. Uh -huh. And I, I just broke the 300 mile mark yesterday. So I'm on, I'm on track. Yeah. And um, and I will confess, I love binging on Netflix. Okay. So right now, my husband and I are watching Shameless. And then you'll love this because, you know, you're asking me about how do I release and discharge from all the stress of talking about suicide all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm watching Breaking Bad. Okay. <laughs> My my choice of escapes might not be the best, <laughs> but they work for you. That's all that matters. Yes. Seriously. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I watched Nurse Jackie a couple months ago. Have, have uh -huh. you seen that? I did. I found that very powerful. Yeah. Oh, I think it's the best TV I've ever watched, and I've watched a lot of really good TV. Uh huh. So um, so you know um, and then I mean I, I different things you know eating good meals, and chocolate, and, you know, things like that. But I will say, I think the hardest thing about my work, you know, my, the different hats I wear, it's not seeing clients because, you know, being in, let me rephrase that. It's not seeing clients who are suicidal. That isn't depressing to me because being in connection with the person, um, uh, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but 
what, what I'm contrasting it to is that the hardest is my website and the comments I receive mm, okay. because I receive comments, you know, um, that people submit on the website from people who are so depressed and feeling so hopeless and, you know, they, they're, they're resolved that suicide is their option. Mm -hmm. And I know that most of those people do not die by suicide, right. but I will never get to know that for real. Right. You know, uh, cause they don't write back. Yeah. And that right now is what's eating at me the most is sitting with that, their hopelessness without being in connection with them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and that these are just strangers in the universe who, um, who are one dimensional in my mind, because that's the only dimension I'm seeing of them. But in reality, they, you know, they have a whole lot of other things going on and they may wake up tomorrow and feel different. Right. And, and I will never know that. Right. So, so I'd say that that's the, the biggest challenge for me right now. Yeah. And, and I can certainly appreciate that, that, that exposure to people throwing out their pain and not having any way to, to know what that and what becomes a printed statement on, you know, the Facebook or the, uh, you know, a blog comment on the website, you know, what, what's the meaning to them of that comment and what happens in their life. And, you know, was this a specific moment of bleakness that they wrote that, or is this where they live most of the time and the, the helplessness that we, we don't have the ability to, to fully communicate and engage via, you know, those blog comments, Facebook comments. And not only do we not have the ability in terms of, you know, I, I may not know their email address. I'm, you know, I may not have a way to contact them, but also as a therapist, I can't practice therapy right. with strangers, you know, so over, over the internet, right. you know, there needs to be a, a therapy relationship where they consent to care and, you know, consent to receiving care. And, yeah. you know, we have, a, a relationship. And so I can't just be doing therapy in the comments section. Right. Very good point. And so I know, I'm sure you do this periodically and I know I do this periodically is, is remind people that, that if they're at a point when what they know how to do and their social support, you know, personal network isn't really sufficient, a way to, to get some help and to get some direction on more help is, through this variety of suicide prevention supports that exist in in our country nationally, um, and and I always throw out a mix of those. I'm I'm as somebody who worked for so long in a in a crisis center where much most of the work was by phone rather than in person. Um, I'm actually. Um, a believer that now probably text is more relevant to a lot of people than voice phone. So I always include crisis text line 741741. I, I do always include the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 800 273 8255. 
and when I have the space and time, remind people that that's the key, the, that's the connection to the Veterans Crisis Line by phone, that's a connection to, um, there's a, a, a different number for TDD, there are language interpreters that can be networked in, you know, I always mention Trans Lifeline, and I don't have that number at the top of my brain as long as I've known it. I, I can't remember it, but I always know how to look at it, and it's in my phone. Well, let, over, you know? let me interrupt. Yeah. The Trans Lifeline is 877-565-8860. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's that. There are different layers of things. There's the Coco app that I learned about through the social um, media discussion. There's Seven Cups of Tea, which is another peer network. There are lots of things that people can do to connect with other people, even if it's a need outside of their original support network. And I think that's really important that we that we make that known and and possible for people. You know, there's there's great stuff. Um, and and people who are really compassionate are the ones who are staffing all those variety of crisis and peer support things that we've just talked about. Yeah, and I think that's so important, and I'm just going to put in a little plug here for my site, and that's that there is a resources list on speakingofsuicide.com. Right. And it lists all the places you just said, and then it has a few more, like that Samaritans has a 24-hour line, and they also have one for teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, uh, Lifeline also has a crisis chat. Right. And the Samaritans has an email um, Joe at Samaritans.org. That's J O, not J O E. And, you know, where someone can send an email and get an email back, I think within within 24 hours. Oh, no, I'm sorry, within 12 hours. So, um, so yeah, so if if folks want to go to speakingofsuicide.com and click on resources, there's there's a lot of resources there. Yeah, so try and see what you like. And and then the the additional part of all that is that a lot of those provide volunteer opportunities for people who are listening and say, you know, I want to help. And maybe you don't live in a community that has a physical crisis center that you can become part of right there. A lot of these things are things you can do through online training to become a volunteer and that you actually do the service from your location, wherever you are. So there are lots of ways to help, which is a powerful thing, which is why I love support groups, because when you go to a support group for suicide loss or for suicide attempt survivors, everybody in the room's helping everybody in the room, you know? That's a wonderful thing to make those connections and know that that your story has meaning to somebody else, that it's benefiting somebody else. So so much goodness going on um and and stacy we are at the end of our hour so any quick words from you that you want to emphasize i just want to thank you for for talking about suicide and getting the word out that we can talk about it and that we need to talk about it well thank you and and listeners Look at speakingofsuicide.com on the web. Look at Speaking of Suicide on Facebook and start reading those posts and sharing them because it's great information. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you, listeners. And so long to our listeners.